Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone, and I'm coming to you live from Macquarie University. And I'm here today with Travis Vogan. He's an associate professor of journalism and American studies at the University of Iowa and the author of A Ripper. Uh, I loved it. Uh, and I think it will be a, an interesting way of looking at sports for people here on our channel. The book is called ABC Sports, The Rise and Fall of Network Sports Television, out from University of California Press in 2018. Thank you very much for joining us, Travis. Hey, Keith. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Travis, I, um, I mentioned to you before we started, I love the book. It was a really... Um, it's not as often as you'd think that I get to read sports history that's not about something that's happening on the field. And I think it's something we need to do much, much more of in, in, the, in this subfield of sports studies. Um, so I love, I love this book and I want to know more about how you developed this project. How did you come to study ABC sports? Um, yeah, well, well, my PhD is in media studies. So I, I study media first and foremost, and, and sport is a, is a topic that I kind of came to secondarily through media studies. And basically, I, I was doing this research as a graduate student or kind of starting to do research. And I realized that that sport was this massively popular part of media culture that there wasn't a ton of research on. And, you know, most of us experience sport typically through some form of mediation and we all know that media shape to certain degrees how we understand these phenomena that we experience through them and so i came to understand more and more that sport at least as i understood it and as least as i think it's understood typically is is always kind of shaped through mediation and so obviously I was looking at representations of sport, but then I became more and more interested in 
the kind of institutional and industrial factors that shape those representations over time and the kind of cultural work that they do. And so my first book was on NFL films. Um, My second book was on ESPN. And both of those kind of touched on ABC Sports in certain ways. And ABC Sports is kind of the foundation for both of those other topics. It was kind of in the background in a sort of um, broader um, manner. And so I kind of was going backwards in a way to look at ABC Sports after doing these first two projects that both kind of mentioned ABC Sports. And I wanted to get that foundation developed and figure out how kind of modern sports television emerged and the different players involved and the kind of politics of it and how the economic issues sort of intersected with the cultural issues. And um, that kind of motivated me to want to tell the story of ABC Sports because I think once we get that story um, developed, then then the rest of kind of sports media history, at least from the 50s on, uh, falls into place a little bit more uh, seamlessly. Yeah, I mean, I um, I completely bought bought that in 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 the reading. I was like, oh my god, I didn't realize how much of our contemporary sports media landscape is actually shaped by a, a really small number of people operating in one place in a kind of innovative new way. So I I wonder if you could tell us a bit about how you know ABC Sports comes into being because. It, that wasn't the first thing that ABC was doing and it wasn't necessarily obvious that they were going to take on sports. So how does ABC sports start? Right. That's a good question. I mean, ABC was sort of the, um, really the, the kind of underdog network in the fifties, people would joke around and call it the almost broadcasting company. It was sort of in the shadow of NBC and CBS. And, and one of the ways that, that ABC, became um, viable and distinctive was by investing in sports. And they, they started producing this sports programming. And one of their producers, this person named Rune Arledge, was developing kind of an aesthetic that, as he put it, tried to add show business to sports. I mean, most times when when sports was represented in early television, it was kind of a, a knot hole in the fence approach. Sorry, Keith. Um, no and, worries. <laughs> all right, I'm going to go back. So when sports was initially represented in the 1950s, it was kind of a knot hole in the fence approach where you just kind of set up a camera at the margins or at the, at the perimeter of a field and let it play out. And one of the things that Arledge wanted to do was to borrow from other media genres like documentary, um, news programming, and even fictional uh, programming to try to create characters, storylines, drama, and so forth. And he was able to experiment with that approach, with that aesthetic, with programs like Wide World of Sports which was a non-live weekend program that they developed in 1961. And one of the things about Wide World of Sports is that it was showcasing mostly obscure sporting events, you know, bobsledding, um, uh, hydroplane races, that kind of stuff. 
And because it was showcasing these um, obscure sporting events, one, it was not the kind of stuff that people were going to really be rushing to the newspaper to figure out what happened immediately afterwards. And so they had a little bit of space and they were able to depict these things non-live and to do so in a way that made them entertaining. And you really have to make a bobsledding race entertaining in order for people to to um, enjoy it. And so they created this distinctive aesthetic approach to showcasing sports on TV. And that sort of paved the way for them to do the Olympics, for instance. And they kind of developed that same approach to um, launch uh, Monday Night Football. And then that sort of built into, you know, the template for what we now identify as kind of the commonplace aspects of sports television, where before a game, they're introducing a player and talking about, you know, and this, you know, talking about how, for instance, a player's uncle died of COVID, you know, a couple months ago and how they're struggling with that and dealing with getting back on the field amid this adversity. That sort of storytelling aspect was something that, that we can kind of trace back to to Rune Arledge and ABC Sports. Yeah, I, I the character of Rune Arledge. Um, I almost wondered if this could have been written as a bi- as a as a biography, <laughs> because he he dominates in some ways the story, but he's also so particular. I'm, I'm reading it and I'm having like real Mad Men vibes, and he's uh, he's definitely you know, of that era. You know, he's of that 1950s executive era um new york city um he was deeply influenced by for instance playboy and wanted to develop something that would attract men and sell and that would sell advertising to men and what could be better to do that than sports and so he was this kind of impresario type figure for abc and really kind of a personification of ABC Sports, which he presided over for, you know, quite a long time. Um, And he was also this kind of entrepreneurial sort, you know, he eventually became the president also of ABC News, based in large part on how ABC Sports was covering the Olympics, Um, in particular, the 1972 Olympics in Munich, which we all know are famous because of the, um, the uh, Black September um, kidnappings and, and murders. And they basically covered that like a live news event in a way. It was one of the first sort of live news events that, uh, was on TV that people were experiencing as it happened. And based on that, ABC wound up putting, or based in part on that, I should say, ABC wound up putting Arledge in charge of ABC news, which was reinvented um, through the lens of ABC Sports, and which quickly became kind of the most popular network news out, outlet that other networks started mimicking. So one of the things about this book that I try to emphasize is that it's not just about ABC Sports isn't just about sports, but it's about these other genres as well. So the ABC Sports practices wound up kind of reshaping network television news. And a lot of other ABC sports um, programs had impacts across other genres as well. For instance, um, I look at how um, the miniseries Roots 
sort of grew out of the programming practices surrounding Monday Night Football and the ABC movie of the week in terms of how they were dealing with um, uh, racism and multiculturalism in the early 1970s and how they were programming these sorts of uh, crossover events in primetime and how Monday Night Football sort of dovetailed with how they wound up programming Roots and um, Brian Song and, and those those sorts of shows. So I wanted to show that ABC Sports um, was producing sports programming, but it also had impact on other genres of television beyond just sports. I think that when we look at sports television and we just kind of isolate it within that genre, we actually miss quite a bit. Yeah, that certainly came through in the reading. I, I mean, I don't come from media studies, so I can't comment as much on uh, on that that from someone from that perspective, but from the perspective of, of an historian, um, it seemed very clear to me that, you know, Arledge's, uh, his innovations were um, bleeding out into other other sectors of, of the, the network and, and also in other networks were picking them up. And yeah. that was, I think, one of the really rich parts of the story is just how, and in fact, how overlapping all of these things were in terms of personality, production techniques, um, uh, aesthetic uh, values. Um, and then once I got to the end of the book, I was like, oh, television makes a lot more sense in some ways. Um, <laughs> well, that's the I, idea. You know, you want you want to be able to use, you know, sports, sports television is this kind of, you know, it's this thing unto itself. It's very popular in academic circles. It's kind of marginalized, but it's had a significant impact not just on sports, but on media more generally. If we look at kind of what drives media, popular media, a lot of times sports sits at the center of that. And I don't think that, you know, as a, as a scholarly community, we've dug into that quite as much as we could and as we probably will as we continue to kind of build out this topic. So it was exciting to kind of be on the early end of that. Okay, so... Um, we're, we're hopping all over the book uh, in a little, in a, in some ways. And I should, I should tell, um, listeners that the book proceeds very, very much on a kind of chronological, it does trace that rise and fall. Um, so the second chapter of your book in, in many ways illustrates how Rune, Rune Arnledge and others at ABC Sports were attempting to create this kind of media, um, let's say media product, you know, cause they, they previously only had these kind of like obscure sports and sure. Some people watch them and it didn't cost that much to, to, to get the rights to show them, but that wasn't, you know, their aspirations were much bigger. So how, how did they grow uh, into a, into a company that could uh, eventually, you know, cover the Olympics that that wasn't what they were able to do at first. So how do they make that leap from kind of fledgling company with a good idea to, you know, dominating the, the sports um, sector and, and really bringing ABC up to the height of the, you know, the, the network competition. Yeah. And, and you, you make a good point because they really didn't have the, the premium sports until, until later on. And they started with, a lot of these sports that were kind of, you know, more Olympic sports, but they weren't definitely weren't broadcasting the Olympics right off the bat. And, and they did so through kind of a combination of um, establishing 
certain connections to the more obscure sports, but also gaining accolades for their quality, right? And suggesting that they were doing more than just showing sports. Uh, one of the big things that they would do with Wide World of Sports in the first um, couple of years was to showcase the US USSR uh, track meet. And they would sort of tap into these Cold War tensions in depicting this track meet and look at the kind of issues of diplomacy and all that sort of stuff that were coursing through this sporting event and really kind of probe that, um, obviously exploiting some of the Cold War tensions, but also kind of exploring some of those Cold War tensions. And they were able to um, use that kind of identification with some of those events in order to parlay that into contracts for the Olympics. And, and the Olympics contracts actually at this point really weren't that um, uh, coveted, certainly not in the way that they are now. So it wasn't quite as complicated back then to get a contract to showcase the Olympics as it is um, today. You know, I mean, most of their Olympics coverage when they first started doing it in 1964 wasn't live. Um, and so they were really kind of using the wide world of sports template to develop um, an approach to doing the Olympics. And that eventually kind of cascaded into an approach that was more immediate and based on live coverage and they would integrate kind of their more wide world of sports oriented taped coverage in it and do kind of um, taped um, uh, programs before the events to kind of set them up. And so it really was kind of a gradual process. And it wasn't really until, I mean, 1976 when they were doing almost entirely live programming at the Olympics. And it wasn't until 1968 that they started branding themselves as the quote network of the Olympics, which NBC now kind of um, identifies as where, you know, we'll put the Olympic rings under the NBC logo during Olympic years and stuff like that. And so it, it really kind of ABC really kind of developed the Olympics into a hot media property. It was pretty obscure um, in the early 1960s. It really wasn't as big of a deal as it is now. I mean, people watched it, people were interested, but it wasn't um, nearly the kind of spectacle that it is today. And part of the reason that it became that sort of spectacle is because of the kind of exposure that it wound up getting specifically through television. And ABC, again, kind of laid the foundation for that. Yeah, I, I um, there's so many rich uh, little anecdotes and funny stories. And I feel like I could just bring them up with you and have you tell them for the next 35 minutes. And that would be funny and, and useful. Um, but like, I, I was intrigued by uh, Arledge's long, um, long approach to the Olympics, like understanding, Hey, I, I think we want to get the Olympics. I think we could do more than other people, but we don't have it right now. So in the meantime, like let's promote Olympic sports and the other networks were thinking, this guy's crazy. They're going to, they're going to do all the pre-Olympic stuff and they're just going to drive viewers right into our cover, you know, because we have the Olympics, but our understood, like, actually, you know, I, I want to grow the profile of people who like 
Olympic sport. And I can, I can use that, um, through these other, through these other programs I have like wide world of sports. It, it was really fat, fascinating. I, I wonder, um, do, do we have Arledge and ABC sports? Uh, should we credit them then with like a, a, a few points in your, in your book, you say that they broaden the American mind. I, I wonder if you can expand on, on some of that idea. Um, and like what, so how did they broaden our mind during the cold war, you know? Well, I think in, in certain ways they were exposing us to, you know, different cultures um, in ways that that mainstream television wasn't doing as overtly. A lot of documentary programming was doing that and they were kind of aligning themselves with some of the more kind of, quote, high cultural documentary type programming that was looking at um, diplomatic relations and those sorts of things. Uh, but they were also really calculated and they were trying to build their own identity as an organization that carried sports. And they realized that international sports was one area where they could grow and maybe eventually get a toehold into the Olympics, which Arledge thought, you know, he could build into a, a popular spectacle. And um, they were also interested in, you know, dramatizing first and foremost, right? In, in order to try to sell advertising and all the kind of stuff that commercial television does. Um, and a lot of times that drama came from these sorts of social issues that, that were um, depicted through um, their coverage. For instance, um, the controversy surrounding uh, Muhammad Ali. That was something that, that ABC Sports really kind of picked up on and, you know, I don't know if it was cynically capitalist on their part entirely or if it was more fueled by a kind of sense of social and political purpose, probably a combination of those things. But they gave Muhammad Ali one of his main platforms through these interviews that he would do with Howard Cosell frequently on Wide World of Sports on Saturday afternoons. And um, they would talk about his matches, of course, but they would also talk about his ideas and his decision to change his name to, to Muhammad Ali and his stance on Vietnam and his conversion to Islam. And all of those sorts of things would come up. And it was great television on the one hand, because, you know, is there anybody who's been ever been more charismatic than Muhammad Ali? And Howard Cosell was no slouch in that department either. Um, but it was also engaging what we now remember as, as really, really important issues. And, um, you know, it's a non-live program. And so they're, they're looking for content. And they gave Muhammad Ali a kind of platform to, to talk about that. And, of course, you know, his politics and his sensibility and ideology wound up informing the famous protests in 1968 at the Olympics with, with – um, with um, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, that ABC telecast, and that Cosell commented upon. So, so Wide World of Sports not only kind of um, set a foundation for what the Olympics showcased, but also kind of the politics of the Olympics and the political tensions that played out in the Olympics and how those tensions were um, delivered you know, to a mainstream audience, which again was through ABC Sports and through its coverage. And Howard Cosell gave several really impassioned and interesting kind of um, 
editorials on on the protests throughout the coverage of the 1968 games that directly kind of grow out of his conversations on Wide World with with Muhammad Ali. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah one of the rich parts of your book is that you're kind of intricately weaving um or, or maybe that's not the way i want to say it you're um dealing with a network that seems to have very different at sometimes stakes involved in their decisions like obviously they want to make money but maybe as much as they want to make money they want to make great programming and so they, they bring on celebrities like Cassell and, and uh, Muhammad Ali. And, but that also requires them to take on some of the most pressing issues of the day, like the immense racial tensions that, um, you know, in many ways, uh, Muhammad Ali embodied, right? Uh, not to mention the Vietnam War. So I, I guess, um, how did, when you're writing the book and, and, and maybe just how do you see this also, like, how, what was the network trying to do? Like, uh, how was Arlich trying to navigate all these different things? Because it seems, it, some, sometimes it seemed like a pretty difficult uh, problem for them to solve. Well, I mean, they, I don't think, I think it would be a, a, an overstatement to suggest that, that ABC um, was a bunch, ABC Sports was a bunch of activists. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that's the case. Um, I think they first and foremost wanted to create interesting and provocative television. And I think that in order to do that, they had to put sports in dialogue with culture. And and when you put sports in dialogue with culture, you touch on all of these interesting ideas that sports are always in conversation with, you know, whether it's racism or um, gender discrimination or the kind of exploitation economic exploitation that is always kind of at the center of of uh, um, a lot of athletics you know and those were things that Arledge didn't want to shy away from and I should have mentioned this earlier but as much as he wanted to be entertaining he also wanted to be journalistic right and so they weren't shying away from those kinds of ideas um, one of the things about sports television and sports journalism and media in general that's kind of tricky is that these um, media outlets are, in, in sports television in particular, they're paying these sports um, organizations for access, right? For exclusive access to carry their games, right? So that sets up an interesting power relationship right there, 
right? They need to try to stay in the good graces of, you know, whatever their clients, uh, whatever clients they're dealing with. And um, one of the things that, that Arledge was, was pretty good about was letting people like a Cosell um, do their thing without too much fear of, of retribution if they asked touchy questions or if they, they explored things that might have been controversial. And, and so they were able to explore some of these more um, touchy subjects that other sports television outlets at the time were glossing over in favor of just, you know, doing their best to promote the game and to sell advertising. Um, so Arledge was able to, to his credit, kind of skewed away from that. I think uh, maybe the best example of them dri- driving into it, it might be um, their kind of synergistic relationship they're trying to produce between Monday Night Football and, and uh, Brian's song. But first, maybe you can explain how this upstart network in third place, barely the third network to begin with, um, becomes you know the property owners of Monday Night Football, which might be one of the most valuable sports properties around anymore, right? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, again, it was, you know, it wasn't a total, it wasn't as calculated as, as you might imagine, you know, um, the NFL was a really enterprising league. Um, they were very invested in trying to expand, um, you know, by the time that Monday Night Football started, which was in 1970, they, um, we're still not quite the the kind of juggernaut that they are today. It was not too long after the NFL AFL merger and so forth, and they wanted to expand. I mean, they they would have loved to have games on Friday nights, but those were when high school games were, um, and they would love to have games on Saturday nights, but that's when college was playing, and so Monday night wound up being the um, only night that really made sense. And the other networks already had stuff going on on Monday nights. And so, you know, Arledge and ABC were, were really the only network that was willing to displace their primetime programming on Monday evening to show football, um, to show live football. Because at the time, you know, um, most of the weeknight primetime programming was sitcoms and whatnot. And so um, folks at the networks were worried that you know, families wouldn't want to watch a football game during primetime because that's when you watch sitcoms like All in the Family and stuff like that. So it wasn't as if the networks were clamoring for the opportunity to show football in primetime. ABC, again, was kind of, um, in a way, I guess, lucky to have it the position that it did in relation to the other two networks. And it was able to, um, you know, create space for Monday Night Football. And so, so it wasn't quite as, as uh, calculated or sort of, you know, um, genius as you might think for ABC to create this, this program. It was just something that, that they thought that they could do. And Arledge believed that he could extend kind of the entertainment-driven practices that um, – drove his other sports programming and make it work for prime time by adding a bunch of other stuff to Monday night football. Like for instance, um, putting three people in the booth 
during Monday Night Football, uh, making it kind of more of a talk show in certain ways, having celebrity guests on at halftime. Like, you know, somebody would just pop in a celebrity if they were in like Los Angeles or New York or something like that, just to kind of chat with the, um, the folks who were in the booth. Um, doing, they had Reagan and Lennon at the same time, John Lennon, right? And on one episode, they had both John Lennon and, um, and Ronald Reagan. And later, later on, they actually wound up kind of being one of the first outlets that announced um, uh, John Lennon's assassination. Um, they kind of broke that news uh, for ABC, which was kind of an interesting move. You, normally you cut to the news division to break that news, but they, they had uh, Cosell do it on Monday Night Football. Anyway, and it was this kind of crossover show that was um, able to somehow showcase football in a way that attracted a primetime audience. And it really kind of disrupted television, to use a kind of more contemporary term. You know, uh, bars started installing televisions because they felt like they were losing clients or clientele on Monday nights. So it kind of had impact far beyond just kind of primetime programming as well. And, um, you know, interestingly, Monday Night Football was one of the most racially diverse programs, um, primetime programs in, in 1970, anyhow. Uh, we don't oftentimes think about you know, television as, as kind of, or sports television as kind of leading the charge in terms of racial diversity on television. But really, you know, we're seeing um, more depictions of non-white people on this program than we are on most any other program during the time. And one of the things that ABC was also doing was creating these movies of the week and Brian's song, which was based on um, sort of a memoir by Gail Sayers about his friendship with Brian Piccolo, um, wound up being aired the during the second year of, of Monday Night Football. And it was about this interracial friendship between these two football players. And Monday Night Football kind of helped to promote Brian's song kind of implicitly um, there was actually a game between um, the Bears actually played in a game the night before Brian's song premiered, um, which concerned the Chicago Bears. Um, and one of the things that was happening is that that Monday Night Football was kind of brokering this idea of racial harmony through the NFL. And this was all in the backdrop of some criticism that the National Football League was getting for racism at the time. And so um, the NFL and ABC was kind of working together to create this sort of weird picture of racial harmony in sports that sort of grew out of um, some of the other things that, that ABC Sports was doing with Muhammad Ali and also the 1968 Olympics um, in order to confront, but also maybe even gloss over to a certain degree, some of the racial tensions that were happening in sports. One thing that your book shows, um, and, and you've brought it up a couple of times here chatting now, is, you know, ABC seemed to benefit, ABC Sports, I should say, pardon me, seemed to benefit from having, you know, um, 
Rune Arlich's particular vision. He seemed to be a man at the right place at the right time and have um, the, in some ways kind of very innovative ideas about production value, about what sports could be, about how sports could contribute to narrative uh, and an eye for good talent. But he also uh, happened to be at the right place at the right time, or ABC Sports happened to be at the right place at the right time. So I'm wondering then if you can, if we can circle back to something you already mentioned, which is um, Arledge becoming uh, also the head of ABC News, and this happening after Munich, the Munich um, Games. And so, can we talk a bit about how how that happened, and how then sports, ABC Sports. Um, you know, change the way we do news. And obviously, given that we're taping this <laughs> during the presidential uh, election uh, uh, in 2020, I mean, we're seeing some of that narrativity at work, right? <laughs> so how, how, I guess, what is, what's, how does this all work? How, what's the relationship between ABC Sports and ABC News? And what, what does ABC Sports give to news programming in the pre-cable era? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a important chapter um you know one of the things that that arledge had accomplished by the early 1970s was that he had helped to um put abc as a network on the map primarily through its sports coverage that was kind of its calling card um the network of the olympics and so forth and um his olympics coverage was kind of where all these bells and whistles wound up being showcased and put on display and Munich was, they kept, they kept kind of upping the ante for these uh, Olympics as they got the contracts and Munich wound up being one where they had, you know, more cameras than ever before, more personnel than ever before, um, you know, more um, live coverage than ever before. And so they were really set up to show us this um, event from all of these different sorts of angles and when things went down with the, um, you know, Black September attack, they were able to stay on the air and they were able to get the space from the network. And they wound up basically covering this in the same way that you might see um, uh, a big story being covered on contemporary cable, a contemporary cable news channel or current cable news channel. Um, they had their main anchor, Jim McKay, who was normally providing, um, you know, updates as to what was going on in the different events. They had people kind of in the field. They had people sort of outside of of the building where, where the terrorists were. Um, they had cameras set up everywhere. And it was this, this really kind of um, innovative, and, and also probably lucky um, instance where they were able to showcase this event that had kind of captured the attention of the world, which was precisely what the Black September people were hoping to do, um, unfolding live on television and, of course, and eventually the tragedy of it all unfolding live on television. And so they were able to kind of handle that sort of event. And Arledge was kind of orchestrating all of that stuff, you know, directing the coverage, uh, figuring out when they were going to cut to, to somebody who was outside of, of the building or when they were going to cut back to McKay or when they were going to bring somebody in to interview who had maybe seen part of the, um, um, initial murders that happened go down. And so, 
um, they realize later on that that this is somebody who has the ability to reshape how they do news through um, the way that they've been doing sports. And when they when Arledge took over the news division, he in in um, instituted all of these different innovations to their news division that were directly out of the ABC sports playbook. For instance, they did um, world news tonight, uh, which was basically kind of a riff on wide world of sports. Um, And they had anchors at different desks um, in different cities in order to try to give that kind of more expansive viewpoint. And so they kind of remade their news division through the practices that Rune Arledge had developed specifically for um, sports. And Munich was kind of when that came into focus. And ABC Sports, you know, not too terribly long after Arledge took over, wound up becoming the um, most popular, um, or sorry, ABC News. Yeah, ABC News became the most popular division among the networks. And then the other networks started kind of picking up on its uh, practices. Yeah, I, um, again, just to mention how funny this book is, I was I was uh, laughing, thinking about um, the the you know satirists of the age kind of lampooning how ABC News was just like ABC Sports. Well, let's cut to our our anchor who's live. At, oh no, cut to the sub anchor. Cut to the sub sub anchor. <laughs> just like sports, co- just like uh, you know sports coverage. But nonetheless, it, it seemed like. Um, you know, I'm reading that and I'm going, this is the news that I'm watching right now. <laughs> well, I mean, it's only, it's only kind of gotten more frenzied and, and fast paced. I mean, a lot of the criticism surrounding the Arledge's approach on ABC was that it was, it was too frenzied. It was too fast paced. There were too many cuts. It was, it was moving around too rapidly, um, you know, by comparison now it seems, it seems glacial. Um, but you know, at the time it it was kind of showing us, you know, it was kind of increasing the pace of, of news coverage in the way that you might see at an Olympics where there are several things happening at the same time and they have to kind of juggle these, these issues. And Arledge, I think kind of identified that, that people wanted to have, or people were kind of excited by that more lively pace uh, of news coverage. So obviously I'm many people listening, um, sports, sports fans, people interested in sports, um, studies. Uh, we know that ABC news is our ABC sports is no longer the world's, you know, premier sports distributor. Um, so what happens? I mean, this is the rise and fall. Why does ABC sports fall? Well, I mean, I think that the, the easy answer, the quick answer is, is cable television. (laughs) Um, but it's, it's more complicated than that because one of the things that, that ABC sports did is it, it kind of showed that, that there was a a real appetite for sports that, that spanned beyond just Saturday afternoons that, that went into, um, prime time potentially. And that, that went into non-live programming that could be showcased, um, throughout the week. And, um, you know, once cable started, 
developing in the late 70s, we started to get the opportunity to showcase sports um, around the clock. And we noticed that there was an appetite for sports beyond kind of their typical time slots. And eventually, ABC Sports obviously was still in play, um, but we started to get more and more reliance on um, cable, like ESPN in particular, to um, showcase these kinds of events, especially the news, in a more immediate way. And I mean, ABC Sports is still effectively around, but basically what happened is it became, or it's it got kind of folded into ESPN. So NBC Sports still exists, CBS Sports still exists, but um, uh, ABC purchased ESPN, and then the whole, those two entities eventually wound up um, being purchased by um, Capital Cities, which eventually wound up being purchased by the, the, the Walt Disney Company. And so ESPN is effectively what ABC Sports would now be. And so the stuff on, on ABC that airs is ESPN on ABC. And so it basically kind of got folded into this brand that wound up becoming kind of its you know, unruly <laughs> child <laughs> that, that sort of took over the, the domain, if you will. Um, and, and so um, ABC Sports still kind of exists, but not in the way that it did when we were part of that in that three network era. Yeah. Um, another part of this uh, chapter that I found really interesting was this discussion of um, kind of the ways in which maybe ABC Sports had overextended themselves and were now investing in things, spending a lot of money in, on things that um, they didn't see as much return on, especially to keep their uh, kind of their their on air talent, Howard Cosell in particular, uh, happy. And, and part of it seemed kind of like a generational story. Uh, all the main drivers who had entered in, especially Arledge, were just getting ready to leave. And so I, 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 um, yeah, I, I, I did, it wasn't, yeah. it kind of became old fashioned, right? Um, so there's kind of an aesthetic and stylistic element to this too, um, that, you know, ABC during the seventies was, was, was pretty cool, right? It was kind of innovative. And then, you know, once the, the mid 80s happened, they, they were kind of the establishment and they were the old guard. You know, they weren't the the upstart anymore. And, you know, it seemed kind of old fashioned and they were paying, you know, far too much for, for instance, the Olympics and the, the rights fees had inflated massively. And the Olympics, you know, they don't really make money anymore. It's it's more of kind of a loss leader that NBC now uses to promote other stuff. Um, and also by Capital Cities Communications, some people came in who had a very different idea about how to do business than Arledge did. For Ar- Arledge really never had to pay too much attention to things like budgets. He was able to do kind of what he wanted to do and um, people allowed him to to persist because it was pretty successful and it, you know, helped to build the image for the network. Um, 
but these folks who were in charge really wanted to see profits and that wasn't kind of his forte actually. And so, you know, eventually they kind of changed course and um, had a more kind of austere approach. And then ESPN basically wound up being kind of the primary way that that big media company that we now know as the Walt Disney company uh, wound up, uh, you know, covering sports. Yeah, it seemed um, seemed like maybe Arledge had never had somebody tell him before, well, if we cut all this, our stock price will go up. <laughs> and at that yeah. point, it's totally... In that way, I think he was, he was really left, he was able to kind of indulge, you know, in, in ways that, that few other, other people are. Um, and, and he was able to, to kind of take chances and innovate and probably pay people way more than, um, he should have been paying them. And, um, you know, that wasn't from a business standpoint sustainable, but, but from kind of a aesthetic, stylistic and cultural standpoint, there were, there were a lot of benefits to that. Um, and, and that's kind of what makes the story kind of compelling. And that's sort of what makes the, um, back end of it sort of interesting too, because you see sort of the, uh, economic realities butting up against all of the aesthetic, um, accomplishments and cultural accomplishments that, that we associate with Arledge, at least in the world of sports television. I want to encourage everyone. Um, this is a, a really great uh, read. Um, fun. Uh, it was it was just a pleasure to be honest, Travis. Um, and also um, made me think a lot more about uh, what it is we do when we watch sports um, and how we're contributing to part of a broader broader system of distribution that has aesthetic values and monetary values and. Uh, production uh, capabilities or not. Um, so thank you. Uh, I, I want to ask you one last question. It's the last question we ask everyone on the show, um, which is uh, what are what do we have to look forward to you next? I know you have a book out in 2020, right? Um, so yeah. you can maybe you can maybe, uh, as we say in Australia, sprite that one and then tell us what else you're working on. Um, yeah, just I had a, a new book come out just a I don't know, a week or two ago, a few weeks ago called, um, the boxing film, a cultural and transmedia history. And, and it, it sort of grew in part out of this ABC sports project. And it sort of looks at, um, the boxing film, uh, as, and why boxing has been this kind of fascinating subject for film over the course of its history. And it really goes back to, to Thomas Edison all the way to, you know, Creed two, really. And, and also boxing kind of sits at the foundation of all of these important developments in mass media. So it's at the beginning of film, at the beginning of radio, at the beginning of television, at the beginning of cable television, and even at the beginning of, of sort of uh, live streaming like DAZN and, and uh, ESPN plus, it's sort of weird how um, boxing sits at the at the edge or at the beginning of these emergent media and how the boxing film sort of helps to create these stories um, that make boxing such an appealing subject. And so that's, that just came out with uh, Rutgers uh, university press. And, and I've been working a little bit on this, on this project and it grew out of 
the ABC Sports Project um, on um, the artist Leroy Neiman, who actually was hired by Arledge to do on-air paintings and sketches of the sporting events that they that ESPN was covering in um, Munich in '72. And then in Montreal in in seventy six, and I just find it so strange that they hired this artist to sketch the games, and that they would sort of cut to this artist from time to time and say like, well, "Let's see what Leroy is doing," and he he would show these sketches of you know gymna- gymnasts or something along those lines, and I found it so weird that they would they would do something like that. In a way, it makes perfect sense because they were trying to you know, spruce everything up and make everything a little bit more glitzy and glamorous and interesting. Um, but it also just seems bizarre. And, and Neiman was this artist who is sort of critically derided as a hack by a lot of the establishment art critics, but was also probably the most famous or popular artist of his day. And so kind of looking at, at his work in the context of sports has been, um, something that I've been interested in lately too. And, and that's been kind of fun because he's a quirky, he's a quirky dude. So I literally just like sucked in breath and had to not gasp because I, I loved those images. I won't ask you about them. So like, <laughs> oh, sweet. <laughs> I'm, um, I'm really looking forward to it then. Oh, oh that's thanks. great. Yeah, no, it's uh, you know, I, I'm, yeah, it's, I, I keep busy and it's this, this project is, there are a lot of things, you know, for, for some of the folks who are listening who who do this kind of work or grad students um, or whatever, you know, when you're, when you're doing a big project like this or when you're doing a dissertation, you know, there are a lot of things that you come upon in the course of your research that seem really interesting. They're kind of like these little Easter egg type, type um, things that you locate but they're not really going to work their way into the project at hand in any significant way. And so you kind of, you know, put them aside and you, you continue to sort of gather notes on them. And, you know, you hope that maybe you can come back to them down the road. And, and that's one of the cool things. That's one of the rewarding things about doing these sorts of projects. Um, even the boxing book kind of grew out of the ABC sports book in certain ways, because I talked very briefly about this, super fight that that abc sports re-aired between muhammad ali and and um rocky marciano that was this kind of made for television fictional um fight that was initially done on closed circuit television and then abc wound up re-airing it on wide world of sports and it was the kind of thing that in the book i i only talk about i think i mentioned it in like one sentence but when I was doing the research, I just thought it was so strange and fascinating that I knew I kind of had to go back to it and look at it in more detail. And so I was able to do that with an article I wound up writing on the super fight that wound up kind of helping me to develop the book on the boxing film. And the Neiman thing is kind of a similar deal where you find these little things that wind up being, I don't know, a paragraph or two in the book, but they can kind of grow their own, um, or have their own life independently down the road. And um, so that's kind of a fun byproduct of some of these larger projects. And of course, the ABC Sports book grew out of, in large part, the ESPN book. Um, 
So, so these things kind of, you know, they have these sorts of tentacles that intersect with other projects and, you know, you're able to kind of find paths into new topics through the original topics that you're looking at. I'm sure they'll prove, uh, this book will prove uh, inspirational for people who are not just yourself too. <laughs> um, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, thank you so much. Um, I've been speaking with uh, Travis Vogan. He's an associate professor of journalism and American studies at the University of Iowa and the author of ABC Sports, The Rise and Fall of Network Sports Television. I, I encourage all the listeners to pick this up. Great book. Um, so many, so much richness in terms of its scholarship, but also just fun to read, which it's not always the case with uh, as, as um, important scholarly works. Um, so I want to say again, Travis, thank you. Uh, you've been listening to New Books in Sports. I am Keith Rathbone coming to you uh, live from Macquarie University. Thank you all for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.